2: In 2020, America is practically defined by political polarization. It's not just that Democrats think Republicans get policy wrong or vice versa. Americans believe more and more that the opposing party is actually an existential danger to the country. This polarization has grown worse in recent years. But it was still prevalent in 2008 when a psychologist named Jonathan Haidt addressed it in a TED Talk called The Moral Roots of Liberals and Conservatives. What happens, he asked, when our political team loses?
0: We try to explain why half of America voted uh, for the other team. Uh, We think they must be blinded by religion uh, or by simple stupidity.
2: (laughs) The laughter in the room suggested how visible and how deep political divides were running. But hate had come to propose a solution.
0: If you think that half of America votes Republican because they are blinded in this way, then my message to you is that you're trapped in a moral matrix, in a particular moral matrix. And by the matrix, I mean literally the matrix like the movie The Matrix. Um, But I'm here today to give you a choice. You can either take the blue pill and stick to your comforting delusions, or you can take the red pill, learn some moral psychology, and step outside the moral matrix.
2: At the bottom of our political divisions, Haight suggested, was a deep disagreement about morality, what we should value, what counts as right. We can start to overcome those divisions if we understand morality better. But where did Haight go first for that understanding? Not to moral philosophy or religious teachings. He went to science. Welcome to Ministry of Ideas. I'm Zachary Davis. Today, we're looking at scientists like Jonathan Haidt and their research in psychology, evolutionary biology, mathematics, and more, to ask what science can tell us about morality. Morality is a broad topic, with a broad definition. For philosophers of virtue like Aristotle, morality is about the character traits that a person should develop, such as courage. For other philosophers, such as Immanuel Kant, morality is a matter of duties, rights, and obligations. What you must do and what you must not do. For example, we might identify a moral duty not to lie. For others, like John Stuart Mill, it's about the goods and values that we ought to pursue. Morality here might mean promoting each person's happiness. For many people, morality involves all these elements. But however we define it, The very idea that morality is connected to science can be controversial. This is popular science writer Sam Harris in a 2010 debate at Arizona State University on the question, can science tell us right from wrong?
1: I'm going to talk to you tonight about the relationship, as I see it, between science and human values. Now, many people think this relationship is somehow problematic. Uh usually because they think that the universe is parceled into these separate quantities. On the one hand, we have facts, which obviously science can deal with. But on the other, we have values, which inconveniently for us, cover the most important questions in human life. And it's thought science really can't touch these. And it's thought that while science may be able to help us get what we value, it can never tell us what we ought to value.
2: It may be true that we don't get our morality from science, but it's also true that science can help us get to our morality. That is, we can use scientific discoveries to help us become more informed, more effective moral agents. We can start by looking at a field sometimes associated with the last century's most immoral practices, Darwinian evolution.
3: If- I could give a prize to the single best idea anybody ever had. I'd give it to Darwin. Ahead of Newton, ahead of Einstein, ahead of everybody else.
2: That's philosopher Daniel Dennett, speaking with scientist Richard Dawkins about his book, Darwin's Dangerous Idea, for the 2008 UK program, The Genius of Charles Darwin. Darwin published his revolutionary work on the origin of species in 1859. In this book, he introduced the foundational theory of evolutionary biology that populations of living organisms change or evolve over generations through a process he termed natural selection. The process looks like this. Because resources in an environment are limited, individuals in a population compete for those resources. Those individuals vary slightly in their traits. Some birds have a different shape of beak, for example, or a different color of feather. If those variations lead to any advantage or increased fitness in competing for resources, those fitter individuals will be more likely to survive and reproduce. Their offspring will then inherit the advantageous trait. And gradually, a higher and higher proportion of the population will come to possess that trait. And so, over the generations, the entire population itself will change. Diane B. Paul, a research associate at Harvard University's Museum of Comparative Zoology, explains.
3: According to the Origin of Species, there's a struggle, a Malthusian struggle for resources in short supply. Uh, there are always, metaphorically speaking, more mouths to feed than there's food available to feed them, or space and light. So there's a severe struggle driven by resources that are in short supply. That struggle exists because of the tendency to procreate without limit, right? But that over-procreation is beneficent in a sense. It's good because that's what drives the struggle that produces, in the end, us, progress. And that reading of uh, Darwinism uh, was, of course, easily allied to the view that in the economy, we should have unrestricted competition as well.
2: We often refer to this Darwinian struggle with the phrase survival of the fittest. The term was coined in 1864 by English biologist Herbert Spencer, who believed Darwin's theory had social and political implications. Spencer believed not just that the fittest survive, but that only the fittest should survive. In his 1851 book, Social Statics, he had protested against laws offering relief to England's poor because these laws interfere with a natural, quote, purifying process. The view that society should allow the more competent to outcompete the less is what we now refer to as social Darwinism.
3: So social Darwinism becomes, in many people's minds, the theory that biology justifies unrestricted laissez-faire, dog-eat-dog capitalism. The race goes to the strongest, the devil take the hindmost, that kind of thing, in the economy and in society.
2: This theory was embraced by many American business tycoons in the late 19th century, who saw Darwinism as validating their aggressive business practices. In his 1889 essay, The Gospel of Wealth, steel baron Andrew Carnegie wrote, quote, While the law of competition may sometimes be hard for the individual, it is best for the race because it ensures the survival of the fittest in every department. Carnegie gave extensively to philanthropic projects like public libraries, which he saw as enabling poor but talented people to thrive. But he strongly objected to almsgiving that would, quote, aid the unworthy. Others asked how society could avoid producing unworthy people to begin with. Darwin's cousin, Francis Galton, became obsessed with On the Origin of Species— He worried that the people with the best intellectual and moral traits tended to have fewer children than those with the worst traits, and that this would decrease humanity's overall fitness. Princeton historian Keith Wailoo discusses Galton on American Experiences' The Eugenics Crusade, a PBS documentary series.
0: Darwin believed that evolution was this natural process that was inevitably leading towards what they call the survival of the fittest. Galton really turns that idea on its head and says, you know, natural selection isn't working very well. We need to do a form of selection. We need to intervene.
2: Francis Galton's interventions included incentivizing families with the, quote, best traits to have more children. In 1883, he coined a word for this sort of scheme,
3: eugenics. The main connection between Darwinism and eugenics is the anxiety that Darwinism produced among people who accepted the theory of evolution and wondered if it didn't cast doubt on our contemporary social policies. So, you know, if progress depended on this struggle for existence in which the fittest survived and reproduced, what if we were interfering with the process of selection, keeping the unfit alive? At the
2: turn of the 20th century, this anxiety about an unfit population led many people to embrace eugenics. By 1940, 30 American states had passed sterilization laws. A similar racialized anxiety fueled support for the 1924 Immigration Restriction Act. Advocates of the act believed, according to Paul, that immigrants from southern and eastern Europe were, quote, biologically inferior to old-stock Americans. But eugenics had its broadest and harshest reach in Germany. Within a year of publication, Origin was translated in Germany where it was read enthusiastically. Even World War I was viewed as a natural mechanism for promoting survival of the fittest. American evolutionist Vernon Kellogg, observing the German army, wrote that, quote, Natural selection based on violent and competitive struggle is the gospel of the German intellectuals. This gospel was also promoted by Germany's Society for Racial Hygiene, which promoted strong eugenics measures like the 1933 Law for the Prevention of Genetically Diseased Offspring. This law was applied to 400,000 people. But eugenics in Nazi Germany went beyond sterilization. Besides killing 6 million Jewish civilians, German officers murdered up to 200,000 people who were mentally disabled, physically disabled, or considered otherwise unfit. Diane Paul notes that the Germans' programs were often justified with Darwinian rhetoric. The Holocaust could be seen as the most brutal application, of survival of the fittest. Thomas H. Huxley may have anticipated these future uses of Darwinism when he argued against social Darwinist ideas in 1893. Huxley was called Darwin's bulldog for his strong defense of Darwin's theory of evolution. But he strongly argued against the idea that evolution was naturally ethical.
3: T.H. Huxley wrote a famous essay called Evolution and Ethics, where he argues against what's later called evolutionary ethics. And he says, uh, you know, morality is, in fact, at war with human nature. Uh, Human nature needs to be suppressed. He writes, let us understand once for all that the ethical progress of society depends not on imitating the cosmic process, still less in running away from it, but in combating it.
2: Man evolves successfully, Huxley said, through, quote, those qualities which he shares with the ape and the tiger. But civilized man brands all these ape and tiger promptings with the name of sins. For Huxley, ethics was opposed to evolution. We might still share Huxley's fears today. We might wonder if letting science influence our morality could open the door to insidious new forms of social Darwinism or even ethnic cleansing. But some contemporaries saw another, dramatically different ethical meaning in Darwin's work.
3: There were also lots of people who read Darwinism as validating cooperation. And there were several ways that it could be so read. So there were theorists, like the most famous is probably Peter Kropotkin, the Russian geologist, naturalist, anarchist, who wrote a book called Mutual Aid. Peter Kropotkin was an
2: anarcho-communist forced into exile from Russia in the 1870s for his revolutionary activities. He was also a scientist who believed in Darwin's theory, but saw different implications in it. In his 1901 book, Mutual Aid, he wrote, Besides the law of mutual struggle, there is in nature the law of mutual aid. He believed this law was, quote, Nothing but a further development of the ideas expressed by Darwin himself. In his 1871 book, The Descent of Man, Darwin had written this. There can be no doubt that a tribe, including many members who are always ready to give aid to each other and to sacrifice themselves for the common good, would be victorious over other tribes, and this would be natural selection. This is Martin Novak, professor of mathematics and biology at Harvard University, speaking at the 2015 meeting of the International Society of New Institutional Economics. Novak studies the role of cooperation in evolution, including Darwin's own idea of how cooperation could evolve. The idea is that groups in which members cooperate would be more likely to outcompete other groups, and this in turn would spread their cooperative traits through the population. A social Darwinist might say that helping the weak violates the demands of evolution. But Darwin saw that our sympathy could be produced by evolution. In the late 19th century, many theologians and reformers seized on this aspect of Darwin's thought. They saw his theory as a positive defense of sympathy, aid, and charity. America's social gospel movement, an early 20th century effort to solve social problems through Christian morality, took Darwin as an ally. If cooperation was natural, then evolutionary progress guaranteed moral progress. The movement's warm conjoining of religion and science— and their optimism about human morality was abruptly checked by two world wars and the Holocaust. But 20th century science eventually showed why Kropotkin was right about the law of mutual aid. One of the biggest puzzles for evolutionary scientists has been the existence of altruism in nature. Ben Allen, professor of mathematics at Emanuel College, explains why.
0: We think about altruism as a self-sacrificial act of cooperation. Um, so, uh, it has to be something that is costly to the individual performing it and beneficial to others. And ideally those benefits would outweigh the cost. So this is a puzzle from the point of view, if you're thinking of a strictly survival of the fittest where uh, an individual needs to maximize its own fitness in order to produce offspring in order for that behavior to become propagated through evolution. Um, So the question is, why do we see organisms performing costly actions that help others but don't help themselves? An example of costly cooperation
2: would be the Belding Ground Squirrel's alarm call. This animal makes a loud noise when a predator approaches. Warning others to run for safety, but endangering himself by revealing his location. If only those who outcompete others survive to spread their genes, how could natural selection produce a cooperative organism like this? For the last century, scientists have been working to answer that question. Through biology, genetic science, mathematics, and computer modeling, they have identified several mechanisms by which cooperative behavior could evolve. Martin Novak explains them in his 2011 book super-cooperators, why we need each other to survive. Direct reciprocity, I help you, you help me. Indirect reciprocity, I help you, somebody helps me. Spatial selection, neighbors help each other. Group selection, groups of cooperators outcompete other groups. Kin selection, cooperate with genetic relatives. So the message would be evolution is not just competition, but also cooperation. The mechanism of kin selection refers to cooperative behavior among family members. If an organism has a gene for cooperation, then its family likely has the gene too. So if the organism cooperates to help family members survive, then they spread the cooperative gene even further. Direct and indirect reciprocity refer to tit-for-tat exchanges of help among neighbors. I help you, you help me. Or someone else sees how helpful I am, and they decide to help me. Group selection refers to Darwin's theory that a cooperative group could outcompete less cooperative groups. And then there's spatial selection, the way that cooperation can spread in a group if helpful individuals happen to be located near each other. Ben Allen studies the structure of these networks.
0: And then there is what's called spatial or network reciprocity, which is the the kind that I most study, which is helpful. Cooperation spreading along a um, social network or along a spatial habitat. There's an interaction that occurs between individuals where they can either cooperate or not. And so that's the modeling framework. And within that, uh, we're looking at what are the conditions for cooperation to spread.
2: Alan and his team did find a key condition for cooperation. This behavior spreads most widely in networks where the ties are fewer but stronger.
0: And the way cooperation spreads in this model is that it spreads from individual to individual. And with these ve- relatively few connections, you get clusters of cooperators um, within the network that share their benefits. To put Allen's
2: findings in context, imagine someone who has a small number of friends, but who invests heavily in all those relationships. This person is more likely to help others and to be helped in return than someone who makes as many connections as possible, but whose connections are weaker. Think of the friendship styles associated with Denmark and America. In Denmark, longtime friends are bound in small, tight, exclusive groups, while America's casual friendliness makes it easier to create connections, but hard to sustain them. Cooperation is more likely to spread in Danish-style networks. This research has real-world implications for the kinds of social structures we should promote.
0: Uh, I think the research would suggest that um, you know s- social or institutional structures where people are interacting with relatively few others but have stronger and longer lasting and more frequent interactions with them, um, are more conducive to uh, cooperation and uh, the flourishing of cooperative behaviors than structures where everyone is kind of equally interacting with everyone. Um, So I think of, you know, for example, Twitter as a organizational structure that is fairly awful in terms of promoting cooperation and other regarding behavior.
2: If we're looking to build a network, start an organization, or even just combat loneliness, we might think there's an obvious strategy. Bring together as many people as possible. Mark Zuckerberg claims that this was the logic behind his initial vision for Facebook. Here's Zuckerberg at the first Facebook community summit in 2017.
0: I used to think that if we just gave people a voice and, and helped some people connect, that that would make the world a lot better all by itself. And in a lot of ways it has. But you know, today, when we look around, our society is still very divided.
2: Zuckerberg realized, quote, it's not enough to simply connect the world. Alan's research helps explain why. Cultivating many weak connections in large, dispersed networks probably won't be as effective in building cooperative, thriving relationships as a few strong pairwise ties, one-on-one connections you keep investing in over and over.
0: It could be um, family partnerships, it could be friendships, things that are repeated over time, and things where one allows oneself to... Influence and be influenced by those strong ties in your network um, so that behaviors can spread uh, and hopefully the the pro-social behaviors can spread.
2: This account of how helping behaviors evolve might seem to solve the problem a little too well. It might not explain morality so much as explain it away. Cooperation spreads in a population because it's ultimately beneficial to everyone. Even if you pay a cost to help someone else, you gain even more later on when they help you in return.
0: So anything that's a self-sacrificial behavior that benefits others, and that doesn't get at this question of what the true intrinsic motivation is. Are you doing it because you want to help others, or are you doing it because you're evolutionarily programmed to? It's an important
2: question. Are our moral motivations a mask for strategic selfishness? some people worry that finding an evolutionary origin for our morality ultimately debunks it. As Steven Pinker, cognitive psychologist at Harvard University and best-selling science writer,
1: explains. There is a widespread fear that to explain the basis of morality is somehow to debunk it, to show that there is no substance, there's no content to morality, that it is just a quirk of our brains, like the... uh, the, the, the fact that uh, some odors are pleasant and others are repellent uh, is a quirk of the wiring of our brain. And the fear is that that might be true of morality were we ever to explain moral sentiments in terms of uh, ultimate evolutionary benefit.
2: It's true that costly cooperation only evolves when it yields an even greater benefit. Even when an organism dies to help another, there's still a long-term benefit for someone. The organism's genes. It's hard to think of a clearer example of morality than one person willingly sacrificing themselves for another. We see this moral quality in the character Katniss Everdeen in the 2012 film The Hunger Games. When her sister Prim is called up to participate in the Deadly Games, Katniss offers to go in her place. Primrose Everdeen.
3: No, 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 I volunteer. I volunteer. I volunteer is tribute.
2: The most common examples of altruism in nature are actions like Katniss's. Their sacrifices made for other family members who share the same genes. If one member dies to help several others, it may not survive and reproduce, but the others will, and they'll pass along those same genes. This means that altruistic sacrifice can benefit our genes even if our genes survive in someone other than us. Genes only care about getting passed on. They don't care who passes them on. Genes influence behavior to ensure their own survival, which is why Richard Dawkins famously explained evolution in terms of the selfish gene. If even an extreme sacrifice like Katniss Everdeen's is a form of genetic self-interest, does that mean there is no real love or real sacrifice? No real morality? No, says Pinker.
1: One of the most effective ways for a gene to be selfish is to build an organism that is not relentlessly selfish. I mean, the primary example is our love of our own uh, children. If I make a sacrifice for the well-being of the child, there's a sense in which that consists of my genes being selfish. They're helping a copy of those very genes that happen to be sitting inside the body of my child. But it would be mad to say that someone nurturing a child is being selfish. The fact of, that it works to our ultimate selfish benefit doesn't mean that it is selfish. Quite the contrary, we're valuing selflessness. Pinker's response picks out a key point. Selfish genes produce
2: selfless organisms. It might be true that on a coldly rational cost-benefit analysis, altruism ultimately benefits me, my genes, or my group. But that only explains why evolution selected for altruism. It doesn't explain why we select altruism when we freely choose our actions. That explanation lies with something else. Emotion. We didn't just evolve moral ways of behaving. We evolved moral ways of feeling. Emotions like sympathy, gratitude, righteous indignation, guilt. Those emotions motivate us to cooperate with others, to return the favor when others cooperate with us, to punish those who cheat, and to punish ourselves when we have cheated. Of course, these emotions couldn't have evolved if they didn't benefit our species somehow. It turns out, as Pinker says, that emotions drive us to cooperate and yield the benefits of cooperation even more reliably than rational calculation of our best interests. But the point is, what evolved are moral emotions. We have the capacity to joy in others' happiness, to suffer when they suffer, and to care for them so intensely that we sacrifice ourselves to save them. When we experience those emotions, we often feel that they are morally significant. They don't just register as an arbitrary sensation, like a pleasant smell. They register as signals of moral facts. Our gratitude signals that we have an obligation to someone else. Our anger signals that injustice has been done, These emotions and facts often turn into reasons for action, moving us to repay the debt or amend the injustice. Our moral emotions become moral motivations. Evolution might explain how we are able to have moral motivations, but that doesn't mean we don't actually have them. We feel our sympathy, our gratitude, our compassion as authentic experiences, and those experiences can lead us to make real and extraordinary sacrifices for others. Explaining how morality evolved doesn't mean morality isn't real, but it can show us where the problems in human morality might lie. We'll pick up with those problems in part two, including the problem with sympathy itself. This episode was produced by Maria Devlin-McNair. Ministry of Ideas is produced at Harvard Divinity School. It is produced by Nick Anderson, Galen Beebe, me, Zachary Davis, Anita Danvantri, and Maria Devlin-McNair. Sound design and music is by Steve LaRosa. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us by sharing the show with your friends, subscribing, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information, visit our website at ministryofideas.org. You can connect with us in a few different places. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where we're at Ministry of Ideas. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a Boston-centric collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubspokeaudio.org. I want to tell you about a great episode of the Hub & Spoke podcast, The Briny, called The White Whale. It's about two brothers, Michael and Kevin Gorman. Michael adored his bold and independent older brother, Kevin, who became a commercial fisherman. But over time, Kevin developed an addiction to heroin and died of an overdose. In response, Michael has written a series of plays connecting his brother's death to the story of Moby Dick. It's an emotionally powerful story that I highly recommend. I want to tell you about another fantastic new podcast called Becoming Human. Hosted by philosopher Samuel Longcar, it tells a completely new story about the nature and relationship between science and religion and helps us understand our moment in time and why we need new thinking to overcome our current social challenges. Listen today, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.